and um, that occurred quite some time ago. Uh, looking at uh, about 480 million years ago, uh, it was when at least fossil uh, there are fossils of plants on the land. Now, prior to that, as far as we know, there were no there really were no plants on land. Uh, and probably no animals. Uh, they may have uh, made brief appearances around the edges, but no, there were no land plants. There would be no animals because if there are no plants, there is nothing to eat, okay, ultimately. Uh, and so the movement of plants on the land was a major uh, uh, event, okay? Now, let's go back one here. We looked at this alternation of generations life cycle in the last last class. This alternation between a diploid and a haploid life cycle um, going from and the diploid generation was called a sporophyte, the haploid, a, a gametophyte. You'll be doing this in lab if you haven't already uh, done it in lab. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna alternate back and forth. Meiosis in this case produces spores, not gametes. You will never find spores in animals. Animals don't produce spores. Animals go directly from a diploid to gametes and, and immediately back to being diploid again. There's no independent uh, portion of the life cycle. Plants do that. Now, uh, two major things that happen. The first group that we're going to look at uh, are going to be uh, the, uh, the bryophytes. And bryophytes are things like, well, they're non-vascular plants. Uh, and we'll get into more details of what that really means. Um, they, in these, this group of plants, which would be exemplified by mosses, okay, which we're all familiar with. There's moss everywhere around here. Uh, the uh, plant that you see, the green leafy part, sort of leafy, uh, is actually the gametophyte generation, that, the haploid generation. Uh, you won't see any of the sporophyte generation right now. Come spring, when it gets warm and there's and we get uh, you know plenty of rain, you'll see little tiny stalks grow out of the top of those, and those will be the sporophyte generation. They produce spores, which fall and grow up to be gametophytes, and that's a gametophyte dominant line of evolution. Uh, it's a dead end. That doesn't mean they're not successful. They're certainly successful. There's a lot of mosses and liverworts and hornworts and lots of plants that fit this description. But it goes nowhere else. They just kind of the end. Okay. All right. We did what we could do. We're here. We're not going away. But nothing more is going to come of this. Okay. And so that was uh, this first split here. Okay. Non-vascular plants. Now, some of the plants develop vascular tissues. Vascular tissues are specialized tissues in the plant that conduct fluids. Mostly up the plant is the main part that we're interested in, but they also have another one that conducts fluids in both directions. But the point is, it's a, it's a vascular system. It's a system for moving water in the plant. As a moss, you don't have that, and therefore you're restricted to very small, very low types of plants, because you have no way of getting water up in the air. Water doesn't flow uphill on its own. It needs, it needs some assistance to do that. Okay. Some plants have developed, developed a vascular tissue, and they became the vascular plants. 
the vast majority of plants that you see out there are vascular plants. Now, the first vascular plants are what we will call seedless plants. There are no seeds. Ferns never produce seeds. They produce spores, which grow up to be gametophytes, and the gametophytes produce gametes, which fuse and grow up immediately to become uh, a sporophyte, and we'll get into that, that process in more detail when we look at them. Uh, but there are no seeds formed at any point in time. And we'll see the, the advantage of seeds when we get to the seed plants. Okay. Another group of plants developed this seed arrangement, which basically is a way of supporting the new sporophyte for a while before it has to grow on its own, um, and developed into what we call seed plants, and they split into two groups. The, the oldest group are the gymnosperms, um, gymnosperms are, well, around here, they're pine trees for the most part. There are other or, gymnosperms around. Uh, ginkgo trees are gymnosperms, even though they don't have leaves that look like them, but they are. Uh, but uh, they do not, they produce a cone-like structure. Then that's where the, uh, the embryo forms. Okay. And then we have the angiosperms, which are the dominant plants on the planet. And these are the flowering plants, plants that produce flowers and fruit. That is the, the advance that uh, enabled them to, uh, to continue. So we have one group that is gametophyte dominant. That's this group. All of these are sporophyte dominant. As the sporophyte is the large portion that you see that persists from year to year. Uh, and there are sporophyte dominant. Clearly, from an evolutionary point of view, that was the more successful uh, approach. Kind of had one or the other, and it was, okay, and that was the more successful approach. Now, here's the problem when you go to live on land. When you live in the water, life's easy. Uh, you never have to worry about drying out. The water's all around you all the time. All the nutrients you need are right there in the water. You can just simply absorb them. You don't have to worry about holding yourself up, even if you get large, because water is buoyant. It helps hold you up. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, now, moving out on land presents some problems for plants, okay, which they have solved. And these are some of the things that plants needed to learn to be able to do, or some of the adaptations. Okay, the first thing is that we'll talk about is we're going to talk about roots. Now, when you ask people about roots, what's the standard answer? Why do they have roots? To hold them in place, right? But you no, know, it's really, they have roots because water is in the ground. And if you're going to get water out of the ground, you got to grow down there and get it. And that's really the primary purpose of roots. Now, once you've done that, of course, you are fixed in place. It's not like you can do one without the other. Okay, but... The primary function of roots is, is to extract water and the nutrients dissolved in the water from the ground. That's what roots are for. Okay? So roots were required. All right, now, the other issue you have is, uh, of course, you need sunlight. You need light for photosynthesis. And as you get out on land, if you can get a little bit taller than somebody else, then you get the sunlight and they don't. There's a constant competition for sunlight, particularly if you have an area where there's lots of plants. They are competing with each other for sunlight. 
in a wood wooded area, those plants are competing for sunlight. Okay? Now, in order to do that, you got to get up higher than the next one, which means somehow you have to hold yourself upright. Okay. Now, we're not going to get into wood yet because that's a more advanced thing. But plants developed a substance called lignin, which is embedded in their cell walls, and it helps to support them. And that's why uh, many plants out there are, are upright. They have no wood. They never produce wood of any kind. They're not woody plants. But they still hold themselves upright, and that's because of the lignin that they deposit into cell walls, which gives them strength. Okay, the next thing you're going to have, if you're going to be above ground, is you're going to need that vascular tissue. You need a specialized tissue whose function is to transport water and nutrients. Now, in plants, it also helps support them, but its primary function is to transport water and nutrients. Because where's photosynthesis happening? Up in the leaves. Uh, if all the water and nutrients are down below, it's not doing you any good. You've got to get that water and those nutrients to the leaves because that's where the work's being done. And so you uh, need this vascular tissue. Okay? That's why mosses never get much bigger than maybe like this high because they don't have a, any vascular tissue. Okay? Now, the other problem you have, you have to have leaves. Okay? Leaves were developed as a means of capturing sunlight. Underwater plants, algae um, didn't have to develop separate leaves, although the, some of them come close to that, like the kelp that we looked at. Uh, they have kind of a leaf-like structure. But you, you have to develop leaves, and leaves are basically broad, flat surfaces for, to intercept light. That's their whole reason that plants have them. Okay? You also have to worry about drying out. Hey, when you live in the water, you never were going to dry out. Now you got to worry about drying out. Okay? Um, and so plants are covered with a layer, a waxy layer called a cuticle, which prevents water loss in the above ground portions of the plant. So a cuticle development was another major issue. Okay? Okay. And the last thing you had to have, flowers... Flowers not required. You, you can be successful without flowers. Um, seeds, you can be successful above ground without seeds. Some ferns do just fine out there. Okay, But you, what you need to have is openings in the leaves. If you cover the whole leaf, the whole plant, with this waxy material, there's no way for carbon dioxide to get in there. That's their carbon source for photosynthesis. And they produce oxygen, which needs, a lot of which needs to get back out. And so they develop stomata, which are tiny openings in the leaves, and actually in the stems in some plants, that allow for the exchange of gases between the atmosphere and the inside of the plant. Okay. Now, all of those things are, things are, those are adaptations of plants to living on dry land. All are adaptations to living on dry land. Most plants that are land, terrestrial plants that are in the plant kingdom, um, don't do well if they're submerged in water. There are a few specialists in that. Hence, in the swampy areas, you see them and there's stuff growing there. These are highly specialized or plants. Most plants, if you flood their roots, they simply die. 
because their roots need oxygen just like every other living thing. Okay? ATP has to be made in every cell. That includes the cells of the roots. They need oxygen to do that. Normally in the soil, there's plenty of oxygen down there in the spaces between soil particles. But if you flood them, basically the roots will die and then the rest of the plant will die. Okay, unless they have a specific adaptation for living in saturated soils. And those are plants that are indicators of wetlands. That's one of the ways you determine if an area is a wetland. You look at what certain types of plants that can tolerate being their roots in water. Not necessarily water on the surface. A wetland does not ever have to be totally submerged. As long as it's water up to about 18 inches from the surface, that qualifies it as a wetland because those roots down there got to survive in that, in that water environment. Okay. Um, and so a lot of people get very confused about what a wetland is. A wetland doesn't have to have any water laying there. Okay, it's although often they do. But if you go down to the Dismal Swamp, there's large areas down there, no water on the surface. Okay, you don't dig down very far to find water, but there's no water on the surface. Okay, still a wetland. And wetland-type plants are the, are the successful plants. Uh, Dismal Swamp's an interesting place to go visit, although you do have to put up with flies and mosquitoes and, and the occasional black bear. Probably more black bears down there than Nobody, everybody leaves them alone down there, pretty much. Uh, I'm told that uh, by the rangers down there that there are some alligators that have moved not up into Virginia yet, but into the southern part of the Dismal Swamp, which is actually in North Carolina. And they are now seeing some small alligators down there, small by like, you know, yay big. Uh, as far as they know, they're not breeding there yet. The alligators, you know, as it gets slowly warmer, alligators have moved north. If you go down to North Carolina um, and drive, uh, there's a road that goes across uh, from, uh, I guess it's Elizabeth City area over to, uh, over to the coast, uh, over to Hatteras area. Uh, you go through the Alligator River Wildlife Refuge. Okay, Alligator River. There are there are alligators. There, there are bears. There are red wolves. Now, there's a large area down there. You know, because the land is it's a wildlife refuge. Okay, there'd be signs on the side of the road. Watch out for wolf, wolves crossing the road. I've never seen one. We've driven it a number of times. I'd love to see one. Uh, I haven't seen a bear crossing it either. But you do see occasionally an alligator in, in the ditches. Okay, so um, now that's. Those are all. So anyhow, if you ever if you ever uh, have nothing to do some weekend, go down to the Dismal Swamp and visit this Okay. Now, one thing that uh, really made plants be even more successful was the development of pollen and seeds. Okay. Now, if you're living in the water, when you reproduce, all you have to do is dump your egg and sperm cells into the water, or dump the sperm cells into the water, and they'll swim around until they find the eggs. Okay, that's easy. That's how many animals reproduce that live in, in marine and aquatic environments. Um, you come out on land, and it's not working so well. 
because there's not a lot of water. There may be water at certain times. Uh, and in fact, mosses still have to do that. Their little sperm cells have to swim to get to the egg. Ferns, little sperm cells have to swim to get to the egg. And this restricts them a little bit to the environments they can live in. But other plants don't have to do that. They have developed pollen. And pollen is a waterless delivery system for the gametes. It's a way of getting what we would say is normally the, the male gamete to the female gamete without having to swim through water. That really allows plants to move far away from water and not have to be dependent on it for reproduction. Uh, it doesn't, uh, you know, a lot of pollen is transported uh, by wind and gravity. Uh, you see that every spring around here, about late April, May, when you get the, uh, the yellow uh, dust that covers your car and everything else out there. Um, that's pine pollen for the most part. Uh, using the wind, and we'll get into that later, is not a very effective, efficient way. Let me put it that way. It's quite effective, but it's not efficient. So they produce lots of it. And you get to see it all over the place. Okay. Another way would be to, um, another advance was the development of seeds. Now, when we get to uh, up through the ferns, we're going to see that the little embryonic sporophyte plant, the new diploid plant, it's on its own right away. As soon as it's fertilized, it has to do photosynthesis, it has to get, get nutrients, it's on its own. Now, if you took that little embryonic plant and you surrounded it with enough nutrients to allow it to grow for a week or two to get started, and then put a protective covering around that so it could wait around until conditions were more favorable for growth, you would be far more successful. That's what a seed does. That's the function of a seed, is to give that embryonic sporophyte a boost, get it started, and let it wait, and seeds who can, many seeds can wait many years before they germinate. In the desert, there are areas where there may rain every three or four years, and when it does rain, all of a sudden, all kinds of plants come up, and they flower, and uh, it looks, doesn't look like a desert anymore. All those seeds have been sitting down there in the soil, and sand, the sandy soil, just waiting for water, and they can wait for years. For that to happen, okay. you're not going to see any mosses or ferns in the desert. All right, so this is a, another the development of pollen and seeds. Now, this only applies to the gymnosperms and angiosperms because they're the only two that do this. All right, so this is just kind of a timeline when, when it's thought that these things happen based on fossil evidence. Uh, first land plants, vascular tissue here. Seeds that came pretty closely thereafter. And then flowers and fruits, which we'll get into later, are much later development. But important. All right. So let's look at the bryophytes. Bryophytes are non-vascular plants. That's our first category of plant, non-vascular plants. We have four groups, non-vascular, Vascular seedless, or seedless vascular, either way. And then we have uh, 
the uh, cone-bearing seed plants. And then we have flowering seed plants. Okay. So those are the four groups of plants that we're going to cover. So let's look at bryophytes first. All right, so we said they were gametophyte dominant. We'll look at their diet life cycle here in just a minute. The sporophyte is never an independent plant. It's actually attached to the gametophyte. It essentially gets all its nutrients. It's like it's parasitic on the, on the gametophyte plant. Um, bryophytes are dependent on free water to complete their life cycle. The sperm have to swim. They're flagellated sperm, and they have to be able to swim through that water to get to the egg. And of course, they have no vascular tissues. So three very basic characteristics of bryophytes. Gametophyte dominant, no vascular tissue, dependent on water to complete their life cycles. Now, there's a lot of different kinds of bryophytes. Uh, with, well, three basic groups. Mosses, which we're familiar with. This is a moss down here, this, this, this uh, mixture. Uh, we have something called liverworts, which are really quite common, and then, uh, and then hornworts, which are down here. All through three of these groups are non-vascular plants. Right? Now, this is a life cycle of a moss. Okay, just to get, show you how the alternation of generations process applies to a moss. So, if you go outside and look for a moss, this green leafy stuff right here, this, this, well, actually, well, this is what you're looking at. These are gametophyte plants. They're haploid plants. So, the, and they will persist from year to year. They don't die in the, you know, in the fall, and then, you know, they stay, in fact, they're, they're still green in my, along my walkway where you know they get frozen out and then it gets warm and they stay green and and they will you know they'll be there uh, they're actually very uh, pretty hardy plants but this is this part right here this is the green leafy part um, this came from a spore and this is what grew uh, this is a gametophyte or haploid plant now there are male and separate male and female gametophytes Okay, one produces egg cells, the other produces sperm cells. Okay? So if I was up at the top of a female gametophyte, down in this little structure right here, these are right up here at the very tip, are these little vase-like things. It's called an archegonium. You'll hear that in lab. Okay? Um, and at the base of that, an egg cell is produced, one egg cell in Maybe three, four, five, maybe you know, several of these are going on top of the plant. And an egg cell is produced in each one of them. Okay? Now, on top of the male gametophytes over here, they produce these sac like structures that are filled with flagellated sperm cells. Okay? Now, since they're already haploid, these gametes are produced by mitosis. Meiosis. Now we, we get hooked into thinking that the only way gametes are produced is by meiosis, because that's what animals do. And they're not with plants. 
plants produce their gametes by mitosis because they're already haploid. It's the gametophyte generation. It's already haploid. If you're haploid, you can't do meiosis. No matter how hard you try, it can't be done. Because if you remember meiosis, the first thing you do is you pair the chromosomes with each other. If you don't have any pairs, you're just kind of out of luck. It's not going to work. Now, these little sperm cells will come out of here and swim to the egg cell. Fertilize it, forming a zygote. Now, uh, they, uh, all they need is a film of water. They, they don't have to be submerged. They just need a film of water. In the morning and the spring, often, you, you know, if you walk through, you, early morning, you walk out there, you, you, you get soaked because of the dew that's formed during the night. That's sufficient for them to be able to swim. Obviously, a little bit of rain doesn't, you know, will do it as well. Uh, so, but they have to swim through that water. If there's no free water on the surface, they can't get there. And they just won't be successful at reproducing. Now, they fertilize that egg, which is still right here in the top of this female gametophyte. And this simply becomes an embryonic sporophyte, because now it's diploid. It literally grows out of the top of the female gametophyte. And this is the sporophyte here. This is the female gametophyte down here. This grows up out of there. It forms a little sac up here. It's called a sporangium, which is a generic term for any kind of structure where spores form. It goes through meiosis up there, forms spores. Right here. Those spores are released, and they grow up to be new gametophytes. Now, while all that's happening, the moss does grow to the side as well. Now, I mean, uh, these... Uh, rhizoids that they call them, they, uh, they do kind of grow laterally and, and so the, the moss is, is growing to, uh, somewhat that way as well. But that's how alternations of generations, how the alternation generations process works for a moss, for a bryophyte. No free-living independent sporophyte. It is attached to the gametophyte dependent on the gametophyte, the female gametophyte, for nutrients. And when they grow these, if you see a patch of moss, you see, a lot, I see all kinds of these little stalks all over the top, a little capsule on the end where the spores are formed. Uh, they'll, they'll do this all summer long, uh, especially when we've had some nice wet conditions for a little while. Uh, probably in August it's not there. Well, it depends on what, what the weather's like in August but sometimes it's fairly dry around here in August, hot and dry, and they may not do much during that time. But, um, but they'll, uh, you, if you just kind of keep your eyes open come spring, you'll be able to see these, because mosses are pretty common around here. <coughs> mosses uh, in some areas actually are the dominant into what are called peat bogs. Uh, you may hear about the, the bog people, you know, these bodies they dig up out of the peat bogs over in Ireland and, and that, where they still, where they cut peat and, and they actually dry it out and use it as fuel in place of coal. Uh, and they, they have these big machines that harvest that 
and that periodically they find these bodies that have been preserved down in the peat because it's anaerobic down there and they don't decompose very well. Okay. Um, if you uh, up in Maine, there are some areas where they have peat bogs. And the water, the little streams in the water is almost brown in color because of the minerals leached out of the, out of the, the uh, still supports life. It's nothing wrong with it. It's not brown because of the, it's more like a tea color. I mean, it's still somewhat clear, but it, it looks like, looks like tea as opposed to a, kind of a brownish tea. Not brown from sediment, you know, like when it floods. Now, uh, development of seeds, uh, we have this uh, seedless vascular, excuse me, no seeds here, vascular tissue. Now, these are the ferns, and like bryophytes, they tend to live in wet, relatively humid places. They still require water for fertilization. Their little sperms got, still got to swim through the water. Um, but unlike them, the sporophyte is free living now. The sporophyte and gametophyte are two completely different plants. And they have vascular tissues, which means they can get much larger. Now, most of the ferns you see around here, you know, if they were on this table, usually you know, kind of around this bay, that's what you generally see. Ferns grow very well here. Uh, but you can see ferns in the tropics. There are tree ferns. There are ferns that are the size of small trees. In fact, I saw some for the first time when I went to St. Lucia this year. It was part of our, the drive to where we stayed. We went through an area and there was just nothing but ferns, and they were all probably 20 to 30 feet high. Okay, uh, those are, they're still ferns. They still abide by the rules that ferns do, but they get quite large because of where they're living. Right. Now, the vascular tissue is the key. Okay, so here we're looking at the development of vascular tissue. Now, ferns are not the only uh, plants here. We have horsetails, club mosses. Uh, club mosses are common here. Horsetails, uh, you can find around here. The wisp ferns, I have not seen uh, in this area. Uh, but uh, this is the, uh, over here is, uh, these are the horsetails. Uh, this is a vegetative one. This is producing, uh, this is a reproductive uh, this is a club uh, moss. They kind of grow along the ground. I've seen them over at York River State Park and at Waller Mill Park. Uh, they kind of grow along the ground. They look kind of like little tiny pines, but they never get much bigger than about this. Uh, those are club mosses. They are, they are seedless vascular plants. Alright, so here's the uh, life cycle here. And so we go through meiosis and produce spores. Those grow up to be gametophytes. Now, this gametophyte is completely independent of the sporophyte. It's laying down there in, in, the, in, the, in the leaves and trying to grow. Okay, it's about the size of your fingernail. Not very large. When you see the slides in lab, the, the, they put the whole thing on a slide. It's not that large. Okay. Um, but what they do, is, if they survive, if they get enough light that they can photosynthesize and grow into this heart-shaped uh, gametophyte, then they will produce both sperm and egg cells. The sperm will swim to the egg, 
of either this Demeter fight or they may swim to another one if there's several of them close by. They'll fertilize, forming the zygote, and the new sporophyte will grow right up out of the Demetophyte and becomes the independent sporophyte plant. And that's what you're used to seeing as a fern. We call those fronds, uh, and they get, they, they get fairly large. So these are, are pretty common around here. Uh, you just go out, uh, I imagine you could find them right out in the woods here without too much trouble. We have them growing in our yard. In fact, some of them are uh, out in, the, in an area in the front where we don't want so many of them. They're almost invasive. They, they spread rapidly because they spread underground. They have an underground lateral root-like system and they spread underground and then new fronds come up here and then they come up there and then they come up over there. You can cut the fronds off, but it doesn't do anything to the part underground. That, that's, you know, it's hard to get rid of it. So we like bamboo. Yeah, it's a lot like bamboo. Like bamboo is a, yeah, it's quite a, quite an invasive plant. Not as bad as kudzu, but, yeah. And you, uh, we'll talk about those things uh, later, but yeah, kudzu is common around here. Just drive out Moortown Road out out toward uh, where it, it merges with Route 60, you know, 33 and 60, along the uh, Stonehouse area. There's kudzu. You won't see it now because it doesn't like the cold, but come, come summer, I mean, sometimes that stuff, you see it actually growing out across the road. You know? uh, most of it's kudzu. <laughs> uh, it, it grows very fast. Uh, it grows uh, inches a day. Extremely fast growing. Difficult to get rid of. Uh, yeah, it looks like it's coming out to catch your car or something, you know, but it's not. Uh, you'll see, whenever you see the, the trees in that that are completely covered with this matting of, of uh, what look like vines hanging all over them, that's usually cuts it. Right. So, back to the ferns. Independent, sporophyte, and gametophyte. Okay, completely independent. And these are some of the, the uh, this is the, what the leaves look like. This is a new sporophyte growing out of the, the dimetophyte. This is how the leaves come up in the summer, or in the spring when they come up, they come up rolled up like this. These are frequently referred to as, as fiddleheads. Uh, some places people harvest those and eat them. Uh, they don't usually eat ferns otherwise, but the, the fiddleheads, they, will, they have to be uh, treated Usually eat them with vinegar or something like that. Uh, some of the times, when you look underneath one of these leaves, you'll see all these little brown spots. If you had a fern that you were growing in your house, you might see these. This is not a disease. This is where the spores are being formed. This green part here is a sporophyte. This is where the spores are being formed. Some do that. Some send up a separate. The ones in our yard mostly send up a separate stalk with all the spores on So this is what the gametophyte looks like. So it has both the antheridium, which is where the sperm are formed, and the arpigonium, where the egg cells are formed. Okay, questions about those two groups? Now, neither of these uh, have um, have uh, uh, seeds or anything. The advantage that ferns have is they have vascular tissue, so they don't have to stay down low to the ground. They can get large. In fact, they can get quite large in some places. 
Okay. But then, again, like I said, in the tropics, you'll find tree-sized ferns. You won't find that around here. Conditions are too harsh here for them. Now, these are probably the earliest plants. They were successful on land, but they have limitations. If nothing else, there's, they can only go so far because, in, in terms of environments, because of that requirement for free water to for fertilization. You have to have that. Okay, so that restricts them. Okay, so now it would be really nice if we didn't have to we didn't have to do that. Okay, so then we get into the the, the seed plants, okay, which do a couple of new things. They have two new, two new things, and that's pollen and seeds. Okay? So when we get to the seed plants, both groups, the new things are pollen and seeds. Both of them do that. Okay? Um, that allows them, uh, the pollen allows them to conserve more water, because they don't need free water for their, their sperm to get to the egg. In fact, what we'll find is that uh, they have other ways of, of making that happen that are non-water dependent. This allows them to spread away from the moisture environments into the drier, drier environments. And, of course, the land, when, these, when all this first started, was pretty much nothing there. So plants spread like crazy. Wherever they could you know, adapt to the environment, they spread. Soon to be followed by animals, because now there's food out there, and so animals started moving onto the land as well. We'll get to that when we get to the animals. Animals have a different set of problems to deal with when they move out of the water. Okay. But uh, now, both of these are what we call heterosporous. Okay, what is that? Let me go back just a minute. You notice here we produce spores which grow up to be gametophytes, only one kind of spore. These would be referred to as homosporous. They only have one kind of spore. All the spores are the same. Heterosporous means that we're going to produce two kinds of spores. One kind is called a microspore, and it grows up to be a male gametophyte. Remember, spores always grow up to be gametophytes. Not optional. If you're a spore, you're going to grow up to be a gametophyte. If you're a microspore, you become a male gametophyte. Okay, megaspores, and they really are larger, grow up to be female gametophytes. So we produce two kinds of spores, one for the male gametophytes, one for the female gametophytes. That's what heterosporous means, hetero, meaning different. Okay. Now, Pollen is basically little sperm bearing, they're really gametophytes, male gametophytes, that have sperm nuclei inside. We don't even, when the sperm we'll see in this case are not even separate cells anymore when they fertilize, they're just the nuclei. But they're carried inside the male gametophyte. And the, over there on the right, that's one image of, of some types of pollen. That's what pine pollen looks like. Um, that this one is a wind uh, pollinated type of pollen because these little wings catch the wind and allow it to be spread over wide areas. 
Okay, even if you don't have pine trees right above where your car is being parked in the spring, you're going to get that yellow dust on it. Okay. That yellow dust is a whole bunch of male, little male gametophytes all over your car. They have failed to find a female gametophyte, and they simply are going to die now. Okay. Wind pollination requires lots and lots of pollen because it's pretty darn random. You want to make sure that they get fertilized. Better make tons of pollen and just throw it out there. Hope some of it lands in the right spot. Well, if you make enough, some of it's going to. And that's what pine trees do. Now, the other option, and we'll get to this with the next group, is you can bribe somebody to carry your pollen for you from place to place. And that's what flowering plants have done. They manipulate insects to make them do what they want. We don't think of it that way. In fact, I have a TED talk thing where he talks about, you know, bees think that they're in charge, they're gonna to go to this flower. No, 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 the flowers are manipulating the bees to, to come to them. And we'll get into more of that a little bit later. So they can be carried by a pollinator or they can just drift in, in the air, air currents. The female reproductive structures that become a seed, okay, these are called ovules. It's a new thing. Um, ovules are basically, there's a megaspore. It becomes the female gametophyte, which is usually just a few cells. It may only be eight or nine cells, that's it. Usually it's embedded down in the cone or down in the flower. You never see it, it never comes out, okay, but it produces an egg cell. And then it produces nutrients after fertilization that surround that. And so if you were to look here, these are the ovules right here, where each seed is. Or if you looked in a watermelon that had seeds in it, each little place where you found a seed was an ovule. Okay, so then we get to what the seed is. Uh, you can see the process here. The ovule becomes a seed after fertilization, and there are food reserves laid down for the young sporophyte embryo, and a seed coat that protects the embryo is produced. And generally, seeds don't germinate until conditions are favorable. In other words, if you plant seeds in dry soil and you never water them, they're probably never going to germinate because there's no conditions that are favorable for their growth. But what they do is they provide nutrients besides protecting the embryo, they provide nutrients for the first couple weeks of the embryo's life to get it started, to produce the first leaves, get it above, up above ground a little bit and let it get started. Okay, so gymnosperms um, have what are gymnosperms means naked seed plants. Okay, and that just happens to be, and I don't know who brought this in here, but it's nice that it's here. Okay, so here's a, here's a pine cone. Okay, on each of these scale-like structures, a seed developed. There's no fruit here that encloses it. It's just right open here on this. Now, this would have been closed when it formed. 
And then when they're mature, this opens up and the seeds can fall out. Okay? So there's no ovary here. There's no fruit in, in the gymnosperms. There's are these cone-like structures. And some of them are large and woody like this. Others are much smaller and you know, not, a little more flexible. But there's their cone-bearing. Those are the cones, okay? Gymnosperms. Okay. Gymnosperms generally don't drop their leaves. They retain their leaves all year round. Actually, they do drop needles. If you live near them, you know that. If, you, or if they're over your house, they collect in your gutters. It's a real problem. Uh, but they, are, they never drop all of them at once. Okay? They drop a few, and they'll do that mostly in the spring. When new, new needles come out, they'll drop some of the old ones. Okay. Okay, one group here uh, within the gymnosperms are the cycads. You can see these go over to uh, Lowe's or uh, Home Depot or someplace like that where they've got plants for sale. You'll find these there. Uh, they sell them the, kind of like what the bottom one down there looks like. Uh, they, uh, they look more like ferns at first when you just look at this. But they have this almost pineapple looking thing down here. It's not a pineapple, but it's, it sort of looks like that. These grow out of that. And then when they reproduce, they produce this large cone-like structure that comes out of the middle. And they have both uh, male and female. There are not a lot of these. They're sort of palm-like also in appearance, but they have pollen-bearing and seed-bearing cones on different plants. These are the cycads. You won't find them wild around here, but again, in the tropics, they're common. We have the ginkgos. Ginkgos don't look like gymnosperms at all. Ginkgos look like regular trees. They have broad leaves. Now, but they are unique. They're a unique uh, uh, plant. They are, uh, we know that they existed when, around the time when dinosaurs were still here on the, on the, the planet. It's an ancient tree in terms of its lineage. Very, very old. At one time it was thought they were completely extinct, uh, but then they were found in China. They, in, the, in the Far East they are revered spiritually. In, in Japan, they're planted around temples. Uh, they, you know, they're often, sometimes they're called the maiden hair. But they have these, these unique leaf structure. There's no other plant that has that leaf structure. This is the typical ginkgo leaf structure. Now, there's quite a few of them around here. They've all, of course, been planted by people. They don't grow naturally here. Uh, Go down to Colonial Williamsburg. There's a bunch, especially around Ruby Parish. There's, there's several uh, down in uh, Hydenwood area on Newport News on Route 60. There's a bunch of them planted in that area, the, the old town area down there. Uh, Thomas Nelson has planted some down on the Hampton campus. Uh, they're, they're very interesting. Um, they turn leaves turn bright yellow in the fall, and then fall, and then they fall off. Um, their leaves are really close to the branches rather than, uh, so they, they have a kind of a unique appearance. Now, these have, they're deciduous then, which is unusual for gymnosperms. Deciduous means they drop their, their leaves. They're separate male and female trees. Uh, 
most of the trees you see planted are male trees. Because the female trees produce this fruit, not the fruit, I should call it, this, this structure, reproductive structure here. Seeds are inside of these. And when these fall off, they smell absolutely awful. They turn into a mess on the ground and they really smell very, very bad. Now, Christopher Newport used to have some. Now that they've built new dorms, they may have cut them all down. They used to have some female ones over there because my daughter had, had to, her parking lot that she had to park in was near them. And they, she said it was really an amazingly awful smell from them. So people don't plant the female ones. Well, how do you know whether it's a male or a female plant? Because until it produces eggs and sperm, how would you know? Well, what they do is they take cuttings from male trees and they graft them onto rootstocks. You can do that with plants, okay? In fact, most of the plants you buy to plant are, are grafted plants or are, are, are cuttings. They're not from seed most of the time. And so we take, they take a cutting of a, a small branch off of a male, uh, male plant or tree. They graft it to a root. The root could be male or female, it doesn't matter it will grow up to be a male tree. And so when you go to the nursery to buy one, it's normally a male, male tree. They grow very slowly. Uh, there's one down, uh, Confusion Corner down there in, in Williamsburg. You know, the, uh, if you're standing on the William and Mary side to the left, there's a little garden around a house. They have a very large ginkgo there. The trunk on that thing is this big around. I have no idea how old that tree must be. It has been there many, many years because they're very slow growing trees. They have apparently very few diseases here. Uh, nothing much ever happens to them. Okay, then we have the conifers. That's the biggest group. Those are all your pine trees out here. Most of the ones around here, we have a couple of different species that are common. We have Virginia pines. They have the shorter needles. We have the loblolly pines, which have the longer needles. And then we have longleaf pines, which have needles about the same size as the loblolly. The difference between them being the number of needles in a bundle. If you look at uh, a bundle of needles, you'll, you can count them. There'll be three or there might be five. or uh, That'll determine the difference as to which one it is. Okay, so these are woody plants. They produce, as, as are the uh, ginkgos, they produce wood. Um, and, they, and they grow from year to year above ground. They don't die back. Um, for the most part, these are evergreens. In other words, they stay green all year round. They don't drop all of their needles. Um, and the seeds are on an exposed cone. That's where they produce their seeds. Now, their seeds, uh, if you have any of them around you, are kind of like miniature maple seeds. You all know what maple seeds look like, I think. You know, the little whirly things that go down. These are the, much the same, only they're only about that big. And they, they work quite well because my old house, I used to have them grafted, and every spring I'd have little pine trees coming up in the yard, in the grass. Okay. Places where you didn't want them. They're quite prolific. The only problem they have is they require lots of sunlight to get established. So underneath where there's a woods already there, pine trees do not establish underneath. And in fact, as you get a pine forest growing, they cannot replenish themselves underneath. And so 
uh, deciduous broadleaf trees will gradually, which are shade tolerant as when they're younger, will gradually fill in on them and then take over at some point. Okay, so uh, female cones are very woody, as you can see. You've probably seen, uh, seen I'm sure you've seen pine cones on the ground. Uh, megaspores form in there, develop into female eumetophytes in the ovules. Male cones are much tinier, they are not woody. They produce microspores, which become pollen grains, which are male gametophytes, and then they release them into the air. And they spread all over the place. So the, I have a little bit different alternation of generation life cycle here now. Because when I go from my sporophyte to produce Spores, I have to follow two groups of spores. The megaspores, which grow up to be uh, the uh, egg cell. This is a this is a little haploid thing down inside the cone. This is the gametophyte. It's all there is. It's that little group of cells. Over on the male cones, they'll produce pollen grains, which are released. They'll land, hopefully, some of them on the female cone. They'll grow down to where the egg is, and they will fertilize that egg with a nucleus. Okay, so it's called pollen tube. If fertilization, you get a zygote. You get an embryonic plant development of the seed around it. And then they put the little wing on here because these spread their seeds by, by wind, by air. And so the little whirly thing is to try to get those seeds to fall somewhere other than right under the parent plant. Doesn't do any good if they all fall right under the parent plant. That's not going to help them. And so there's the same basic alternation of generations, except that you have two spore trails instead of only one. Same basic idea. And these are another group here, ephedra. You may have heard of that. Ephedra has been used in some herbal remedies, and, and for the most part, is not very, not very good for you. Uh, it uh, messes with your metabolism, which you want something to take it. Uh, but if you overdose, it can be a real problem. Uh, and then we have these plants here called Wellwitzia. These are desert plants. Uh, basically, this thing is probably many, many years old. They by cones when it rains, and in between, they look like they're mostly dead. And then when it rains, they have enough green left to do, you know, do the photosynthesis, produce new seeds, and off they go again. These are common in, these are African plants. Uh, if you ever uh, have a chance to watch a documentary about the Namibian desert, then we'll talk about these, which is on the west coast of Africa. Skeleton coast, whatever it's often called. Okay. Questions about those? Alright, well, that brings us to the last group, the angiosperms. Flowers and fruits. Okay, so flowers. Flowers are specialized leaves, basically, that are reproductive. 
their function is to attract a pollinator. Okay. These plants, some of them do wind pollination. These are the ones that if you are allergic to pollen, it's going to be usually a wind pollinated species. Some people are allergic to pine pollen. Some people are allergic to ragweed pollen. Ragweed is a wind pollinated plant. You see them around here in the fall, about September. They're about yay high, all kind of fuzzy up at the top. They grow, in fact, they grow all up and down the road over here by the police station. And when they're ready to pollinate, they just send bunches of pollen out into the air, just like pine trees do. That, now, plants that use pollinators don't do that. And so you wouldn't normally be allergic to it because you'd never get enough of it. And, and goldenrod is one of those. Most people think goldenrod is this horrible plant. It's not. It, it is used as a pollinator. It does not spread its pollen all over the place. Okay. So, if I want to convince, if I want a, somebody to come and do the work of transferring the pollen for me, I have to attract them. I have to put out something, a big flag out there and say, here, come here. This is where, it, okay. Now, they have no idea that they are transferring pollen beetles or the bees or whatever, bats, uh, they, all they know is they're getting fed. You have to bribe them to come. Plants produce nectar, which they want, the, you know, sugary substance that bees want. It's what they, part of what they make their honey from. Okay, they want that. Um, and so if you are a flowering plant, you have to bribe an animal to come and do something. And then they just happen to get pollen all over them and then when they go to the next plant, and if you fed them well, they're gonna look for another flower that's similar and they will transfer that pollen to the next one and get more, gather more pollen and they'll go from flower to flower. But they're not doing it because they know they're pollinating it, they're doing it because you have bribed them. You have manipulated them into doing your work for you, okay? That's what flowers are for. They're not for us. They're not to smell pretty or look nice. They are there to bribe mostly insects to do the work. Okay. Um, so they're attractive to pollinators. Often they have ultraviolet uh, colored areas on them, which bees can see we can't, which have little pointers like right to the, the flower. Tell them, here, go here, here's where it is, like little neon lights, go here, go here. Um, and uh, this really contributes to the reproductive success then. If you can get somebody to transfer the pollen for you, then you're not just throwing it out in the wind and hoping for the best. It's gonna be much more successful, and you do not need to make so much pollen. This saves you lots of energy, okay? So, most plant species are in this group. This is the most, this is the dominant group of plants on this planet. And we'll talk about those next class. We'll, go, we'll finish those, and then we'll start move on into the, the fungi. Okay. Have you had the lab on plants yet? Okay, some of you have. Okay, so this hopefully this reinforces what you did in lab. Um, and then, like I said, we'll do fungi on, on Wednesday.